when I was standing out there in left field of the baseball diamond in the, in the prison yard and all the convicts are walking around the yard and doing whatever they're doing, something really powerful struck me that stuck with me ever since then. And it struck me that this is, first of all, it struck me this is a really odd place for me to be playing classical music right now. I'm in the middle of this prison yard, I'm playing Mendelssohn. But the other thing that struck me is, I think people like this. <laughs> you know, they're, they're not, you know, people could be heckling me or, you know, making fun of me right now or telling me to shut the fuck up. But I think actually people appreciate the fact that I'm playing Mendelssohn in the middle of this baseball field right now. I think they really appreciate it. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh, and in 2016, I traveled to Asheville, North Carolina to interview jazz violinist and music educator Christian Howes. Christian's journey as a musician was profoundly shaped by a series of tragic events that occurred when he was a young man. There is much we can learn about music, art, and life itself from his remarkable story. This, then, is part one of that interview. My name's Christian Howes. I was classically trained from the age of five through the Suzuki method and uh, continued my classical training uh, well into my 20s. But along the way, when I was about 16, I started playing with my friends in rock bands in high school. And um, after that, I started getting into playing with blues bands, fusion, R&B, gospel music, and eventually really fell in love with jazz, the entire huge tradition of jazz from early to modern. So if I had to describe the music I play now, I would say it's influenced by all those things. And you were born what year? I was born in 1972. Uh, so fiddle and rock music, there wasn't a lot of that going on. There was a little bit. I mean, by the time you were of that age where you're starting to play rock music, were there other fiddlers in the rock genre that you were looking up to or emulating? Not really. Um, I mean, a lot of people talk about, you know, John Cougar Mellencamp in the mid-'80s, you know, uh, introducing a fiddle into the band and that being kind of a, a place where some of this movement can be traced back to. I do remember seeing the Kronos Quartet doing Jimi Hendrix Purple Haze on um, whatever it was, you know, Johnny Carson or something like that. And it, when I saw that, I had already been excited about the idea of trying to play violin in rock music. And I thought it was an original idea. So it, def it kind of bust my bubble a little bit when I saw Kronos. And I remember thinking, they're not doing justice to this. <laughs> you know, but I mean, that was, of course, the the arrogant, you know, thoughts of a adolescent, but, um, and but, Dylan, Dylan had done one album. What is it? Has Scarlett Riviera, or I think that was her name on one of his albums. And that was a new thing. Cause you know, the age I was, uh, to hear the violin in rock music. I mean, you just didn't hear it. Well, have you ever seen, you know, people talk about Kansas, you know, from the early seventies and people like Papa John Creech and, 
the rock band Kansas. And so, there, you know, of course, there's been examples throughout um, the 20th century of the violin in different styles of music, but they're not normally associated with it. They're kind of anomalies or exceptions. And um, that was that was something that I first kind of confronted and struggled with, you know, at the age of 16, and it's really become a huge central issue or defining question uh, or preoccupation of my entire career and uh, and my mission as an artist, as an educator, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's a it's a much deeper it it points to much deeper and interesting more interesting conversations about culture and about the the segregation of um, cultures. I, I like to say this, I like to use this word or this term, the culture of education. And so what I'm talking about is the culture of education in which violinists learn to play the violin. It is a very specific culture in which certain skills are emphasized and certain knowledge and learning styles. All of these things are part of that. I call it a culture of education. And most of that, in terms of where I come from, from the Suzuki method or from any kind of classical training method, which is very different from some of the fiddle players that you know, like Bruce Molsky, who come from the more uh, folk fiddling tradition. Um, you know, but this this classical um, tradition or the academy, if you will, I think is in many ways sort of, you know, aligned with this uh, Western European academic thinking or learning. And, um, you know, to, to, um, to learn to play rock music or to play jazz music or to play blues or gospel music, it really forces you to confront other cultures of education, or I'm going to use that terminology, one of which could be considered the participatory culture. And another could be considered, um, or others could be literally tied to other cultural traditions. Like if you want to learn blues or gospel music or R&B, a, a way to find entrance into that music or to try to understand it would be to go to the African-American culture and specifically to, you know, maybe, for example, the African-American church, which is where a lot of musicians learn, or you're going to develop an apprenticeship with a blues singer or somebody like that who can teach you the way that they learn the music. You know, you're going to, you're going to immerse yourself in that music. And so, so many violinists um, have learned in this classical tradition and they just, you know, when they hear blues or they hear rock music or they hear um, jazz music, especially jazz, um, it's just so foreign to them. But not only is the sound foreign to them, but the skill set needed to play the music and just the entire value system, epistemology, methodology, pedagogy, all of those things are completely foreign. And that's, to me, really deep because it speaks to the level of segregation within our music education, the, the world of music education. And that's a, that's a field that I participate in. So I'm fascinated with this subject myself. So within that context, 
tell me your personal story of how you began to really understand these fundamental differences that, in fact, the music was representing real differences in society, cultural opportunities, discrepancies in opportunity and wealth and whatever. How did you go from this classical mindset to these other places? So first, as a 16-year-old, when I started hanging out with my friends in their garage band, their rock band, I was instantly confronted with what a different process it was to make music. Because here I was more or less considered, quote unquote, a prodigy, a virtuoso, someone who studied from the age of five and was playing at a very serious level. You know, I was I was among this elite group of young violinists who had, you know, lessons every week, practice every day, group lessons, recitals, institutes, camps. You know, imagine an ice skater or a ballet dancer who's training for the Olympics. You know. So so I, I thought, you know, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and my friends in this rock band, they had literally taken like two guitar lessons, three drum lessons, you know, one electric bass lesson, you know, that kind of thing. And of course, they'd listen to a lot of rock records. Well, the first day when I went to the rehearsal with my friends in the rock band, I I was the one that felt slow. <laughs> What's wrong with that picture? Because it was such a different kind of, of making music. They were paying attention to different things. I mean, well, they were they they knew the lyrics, they were improvising, they all seemed to be aware of the different parts. So the drummer kind of knew how the guitar riff went and the you know, it was just a like a it was a really different thing. And I, and obviously it was a different music in and of itself. Like it was rock music, it wasn't classical music. So and also the construction of the music from a harmonic standpoint, like what are the chords? And the song, like I never even thought about what the chords in the song were because it was a classical violinist, you just play melodies. So right off the bat, I was confronted with with this feeling of like, wait, there's all these things I didn't know about in music. And so then I, I started to get really interested in this idea of what it is to be able to create your own music, which as a classical violinist, I'd never been encouraged to do. And a story I love to tell is about this kid named uh, Noah Phipps who was in my high school orchestra, and he was like the last chair, second violin. So like, you know, when he was playing the violin, he just, it just looked wrong. Like it looked like it was a struggle for him, you know, and uh, he didn't have a lot of chops on the instrument, you know, and, and he obviously hadn't really paid that close attention. He wasn't really trying to follow the rules. And, you know, I was, of course, the first chair. Yeah, I was the concertmaster. I was the undisputed concertmaster, like the reigning concertmaster from, from day one or whatever, you know, because... You know, so, but the funny thing about Noah was that he would go home and he had a four track tape player and he had like a drum set and electric bass and electric guitar and he would sing and he would make these songs that he composed himself and he'd bring them in. And of course, everybody thought Noah was the coolest person in the world. And really they didn't, they weren't, it seemed like they weren't that impressed with me, even though I was playing Paganini and like, you know, all this winning competitions, soloing with the Columbus Symphony when I was 16. Like I was doing all these things that were supposed to be like really impressive. But I was really jealous of Noah. And I thought the first thing I thought was, well, he must just be a creative person and I must just not be a creative person. Like that was the assumption I made. 
Um, cause that's a logical assumption to make, <laughs> you know what I mean? But then I thought, I wonder if I could prove that wrong. I wonder if I could fight against my nature as a not creative person and somehow be creative like Noah. So I started, you know, kind of struggling to try to like find ways to create my own music, whether it was writing songs, playing the guitar and like coming up with lyrics or like sitting down the piano and banging out melodies and stuff. I really didn't know what I was doing, but, but it was, you know, I got this really intense satisfaction from creating music. And this was a completely different kind of experience than what I would ever get in my classical training. So that was, that was the beginning of it. But later on, um, you know, once I was in college, continued to have more of these experiences playing with a blues singer, playing with a fusion band. And I was kind of studying more about music from a creative standpoint, learning to improvise one day. Um, and I was playing bass, electric bass or electric guitar a lot of times with the bands. But one time I brought out my violin for this blues singer. His name was Ronnie, Ronnie Taylor. And he was an older guy. And he was like, you know, what you think of when you think of an authentic blues singer, you know, older African-American guy really just he sang great he just had it down you know he would just show up he would do four songs he would go have a couple drinks you know he'd get his money and go home or whatever we were the we were the young like side man that you know we didn't make a lot of money but we were thrilled to be in his presence you know and just to be a part of it i was like man i'm playing with ronnie taylor this is amazing you know um but one time after the gig we were just hanging out and someone said chris pull out your violin and play it for, you know play it for ronnie let him hear you play the violin and i played something and ronnie was like he was like, actually, you could tell he was like actually surprised. And he was like, that's what you should be doing. He said, you should be playing that instrument in the blues. And I was like, oh, well, that's kind of cool. So I got a little encouragement from things like that. And I started playing with this um, rock fusion guitar player kind of hero um, named Paul Brown. And I was getting more and more experience learning about improvisational music. But the next really, the next thing that really rocked my world though, and made me start thinking in a deeper way about what you were asking about, you know, um, and, and really took, started taking me on the path further to where I am now, um, was when I went to prison, when I was 20 years old, I got locked up for four years on a drug charge. So I was in medium prisons in Ohio. And when I was in prison, I played music with a lot of people in prison. Um, it wasn't organized in the sense of like, you know, uh, or sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. But a lot of it, I, I started to see music in a completely different way. So you had a violin? So sometimes I was able to have a violin and sometimes I didn't. Sometimes I could only play the violin outside. I mean, it's a, kind of a long story. So the, the, the first two years I played in this, uh, um, I was actually uh, somebody who I knew from my time in the university and when I was playing in the clubs, I knew a professional musician who had done some work in the prisons, um, playing music. And he had met a warden and he contacted that warden and he told that warden about me. The warden's name was Ron Edwards. And he told Ron about me and Ron had me placed at the prison where Ron was the warden. It wasn't the prison I was going to be sent, but it was a, it was a, it was a Ross Correctional Institution in Ohio. And um, Ron had created a vocational music program. Uh, 
he had applied for grants through the state of Ohio, gotten a bunch of equipment, and he hand-selected some musicians. And their job, everybody has a job in prison, and their job was to be in the Warden's Band. Do you have a name, the band? It was called the Warden's Band. (laughs) It was literally called the Warden's Band. And um, this band play, you know, rehearsed every day. We had state-of-the-art equipment, and uh, we would perform for the prison. We'd also perform for, you know, guards functions and you know, little ceremonies and sometimes for church services. But then we also went out and performed in the community sometimes. Sometimes we'd go and perform at other um, prisons. And, you know, that was a big privilege, obviously, as you can imagine. Um, but it was also, it also had a lot of it was also difficult for me. <laughs> it wasn't all a walk in the park. You know, they're, they're. So during those two years, I was able to have um, a violin in my cell and I could go play um, every day during the rehearsal. But then I got shipped out to another prison for two years L- in London, um, Ohio Correctional Institution. And there I could only play um, outdoors. Um, so the weather was you know got in the way i mean mainly i could only play outdoors and it was a completely different experience so this group you were in the warden's band uh, how many members what kind of instruments it was all r&b band it was predominantly african-american and so it was drums keyboards a couple backup singers a guitarist electric bass um and myself and the warden actually purchased a midi violin um you know and uh so that I could try to, you know, I mean, there was this idea that maybe I could copy the flute part or copy the horn parts or whatever, you know. Um, was it the first time you'd played on it? I had played electric violins, and this MIDI violin could be used in a MIDI capacity or it could just be used as an electric violin. And I ended up pretty much just giving up on the MIDI. It's a long story, but MIDI and violin I don't feel are really that all that compatible or useful because MIDI actually... Uh, it restrains the parameters that you can control. And part of playing the violin is that you really want to control a lot of parameters at one time. So just if you think of a keyboard, you know, like a, like a keyboard compared to a piano, a keyboard, you can adjust volume on a keyboard, but you can't adjust a lot of other things. So on the violin, you need to be able to adjust pitch, vibrato, volume, and all these things. So MIDI is just not really compatible. So basically, I was playing electric violin, and uh, but a lot of times I would just be doing uh, dancing steps and singing backup vocals and hitting a cowbell because that's what I was relegated to often. So you started down this uh, this path. It, it's almost like a Joseph Campbell in the uh, hero with a thousand faces. The hero has to go into the uh, into the underworld before he receives the gift that he's going to receive, which I, I think mythologically is a very interesting idea. So how'd this happen? How, how did you wind up in this world that you were suddenly in, being incarcerated? Right on. So I think not unlike a lot of adolescents, you know, when I was in high school, obviously I was um, pushing boundaries. I acted out in different ways. Maybe I acted out more than some kids. And, uh, you know, I don't want to pretend that I know the reasons why or that I should be, you know. But um, part of it could have been because I was... Uh, um, I don't know who knows why, you know, but I acted out. So I experimented with drugs. Um, I encountered maybe some bouts of depression. You know, I rebelled against authority in school. I wasn't necessarily challenged. I was frustrated in in high school, uh, frustrated with 
who knows what. Frustrated with uh, just uh, social dynamics, my own sense of self-confidence, who knows. Um, But by the time I went to college on a full scholarship at Ohio State University, again, I was sort of a big fish in a small pond when I went to Ohio State because I had had this really serious training as sort of like an elite classical violinist. And Ohio State University, which is a great school in many regards, but it's not necessarily um, known for attracting the top you know, performers. You know, it has a great reputation as a music education um, program. But it wasn't like if I'd gone to Eastman or Juilliard or you know, Curtis or where there would be tons of these prodigies running around that would really be kicking my butt. So the first day when I came in, I was already, you know, one of the top players. And now I'm not blaming that, you know, <laughs> that's no excuse for me to act out. But I'm just saying that was that was part of what was going on. So in a, in a struggle to try to make sense of where I belonged, you know, I had these different spheres. Um, one was playing in the local professional orchestra. It was called Pro Musica. And I got a full-time contract. Well, wasn't a full-time orchestra. They did about eight concerts a year or something like that. But it was a professional contract. And, you know, I don't think anybody in that group was was younger than 30. And I was 18 when I got that contract. Well, I didn't really fit in, you know, there. And then I was also playing in these blues and rock bands out of the, in the clubs. And the guys that I was playing with in these blues and rock bands, they were all in their mid-20s. So they, they were kind of part of this kind of neo grateful dead kind of scene people that like to smoke a lot of weed and drink beer in college and you know occasionally do psychedelic drugs or whatever and they were into the dead and you know bands like that and which that was, is which is seriously different than heroin cocaine and that kind of crowd i mean this is that thing weed and psychedelics i absolutely agree yeah yeah, yeah i absolutely agree um, I think it's an important distinction that's not made oftentimes when when people do drug education because there are yeah I mean if you if you tell people that marijuana is going to turn them in you know make them think that they're a grapefruit and then they don't think they're a grapefruit when they smoke marijuana they're not going to believe you when you tell them heroin's really bad don't touch it <laughs> you know and that's one of the problems with drug education you know is bundling it all together but anyway. Um, so, so, and then at the, at the music school, like I said, I was a big fish. And then I was also in sort of the honors program uh, and stayed in the honors dorm. But, you know, I, I didn't really, you know, for whatever reason, in terms of my maturity, you know, obviously I wasn't mature. I wasn't completely stable, didn't know where I was going as a, as a young person. And um, so where I found some sense of belonging was by since I was the young guy in in this band, <laughs> you know, I would play at the bars, and obviously there was a drug dealer that would come around and service this whole crowd. And since I was in the band, I had this access because it was you know I was only eighteen, but I was in the band, so I passed for you know for an older person, even though I wasn't older. So I had access to the to the pot dealer and the guy you know that had the acid in the pot. And uh, so I would could buy like a quarter ounce of pot from him, and uh, we were on. We were cool. I was the guy in the band. I was the bass player in the band, and he would come around and see if I wanted pot, and I'd get it. So then, of course, all my friends who were eighteen, 
they they had no access to get pot. You know, they were like, Chris is the guy where who can get his pot. You know, and so they would all come over to my apartment and want to hang out with me, and they thought I was cool because I was playing in rock bands in the bars and I had the weed social belonging or social power or, you know, everybody wanted to come over to my house. And so I think that was part of why I fell into that rut for a while. And I would kind of go out and go out to the bars or I would stay in my apartment and have people come over and we'd smoke weed. And that's what we did. And it was a complete waste of time. I mean, I'll be the first one to tell you, like, I mean, it wasn't like we had meaningful, intimate bonds and conversations. You know, we were just smoking weed and we didn't know what we were doing. We were just idiots. But same time, we weren't really hurting anybody either, um, except ourselves, just by wasting time and wasting our potential. Um, but anyway, um, one time that drug dealer says to me, um, hey, you know, instead of just buying a quarter ounce, you know, you could buy an ounce and then you could sell three quarters to your friends and you'll have a quarter to smoke for free. And I was like, OK, that makes sense. Obviously, you know, <laughs> and uh, so so I did that for a while, and and uh, mostly that was the extent of it. There might have been once or twice that I, you know, had bought a, a QP, a quarter pound of weed or something like that, but maybe just once, maybe twice. Um, but you know, more you weren't, was, in, you weren't in the drug cartel. <laughs> I no, it really wasn't like it was more just like you know the guy, the people that went to high school with me, or maybe a few uh, friends in college. I was not like me, you know, it wasn't like my occupation to be a drug dealer. It was just when I went to see him, I would, I would stock up and then, you know, the people that would hang out with me would, you know, would, would, uh, would buy some of it from me. So it wasn't like a, an operation really at all. Um, and somehow you got caught or somebody, somebody told on you or whatever, right? Is that what happened or? Well, yeah, what happened was, and so then occasionally we would do acid. I mean, you know, maybe maybe once a week. We'd say, hey, let's, you know, this Saturday night, let's all drop acid or let's do some mushrooms. And uh, and that's, you know, I mean, I'm not, I would say that hallucinogenics, I think, can be a little bit, you know, dangerous. Um, I mean, I personally had some intense experiences and I haven't done it for 25 years for that reason. Cause I felt like, you know, I just don't even want to do that anymore. It's just like too intense, you know? Um, but occasionally I would buy, you know, a few hits of acid and me and three or four of my friends, we would all just drop acid and sit in our apartment and space out all night, you know, <laughs> or, or maybe take a walk around the block and then be like, let's get back to the apartment, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and, um, right. so some, so these guys from my high school, one day they said, um, or two guys from high school. And one of them said, my uncle wants to get eight sheets of acid. Now that's 800 doses of acid. Um, there's like you know, a sheet of acid is like a, you know, a quarter of a eight by 11 page usually. And it's perforated into a hundred little pieces. And uh, each one of those uh, one hundredths is a dose of acid. So the sheet has a hundred doses. And usually they, they soak the paper in uh, the LSD, and then so you just put that little piece of paper on your tongue, and that's how you take acid. Uh, and if it's not acid, then people will take mushrooms, which was similar. So, um, so one of those doses, you know, at the time you could you could sell it for five dollars, and you could buy a sheet of a hundred doses for about one hundred and fifty dollars. And so, when I bought eight sheets, I might have you know paid a hundred dollars per sheet. Just to give you, because that's important, I think, for everybody to understand, because the economic um, impact of drug use 
is a really important factor when we consider, but when we think about crime, because I mean, how much crime do you have to commit to be able to afford a $5 hit of acid <laughs> that lasts you an entire weekend? You know what I mean? Uh, so, you know, I just want to make that point. Um, so anyway, the guy told me his uncle wanted the eight sheets of acid. So I called up the dealer and said, can I get eight sheets of acid? And he said, sure, come on over and get it. I took the uncle's money, went and got it, came back, gave the uncle the acid, and that was it. And uh, I think he did one more deal the same way, like the next week. He said, I want another seven sheets or something. So, okay, that was it. Never heard from him. And then nine months later, or six months later, uh, I found out there was a warrant for my arrest. So that's what they call a secret indictment. Because when they, you know, when I did this, what they did was instead of arresting me right then, the police stayed incognito or undercover so that they could then examine my dealer and his entire network of people. So I had no idea what any of this until six months later when they had the, the police had done all their research on the entire network. They had arrested the dealer um, and then they arrested everybody else that they found. And I was in that net. So um, I was shocked. Even even when that happened, I had already sort of taken some measures to kind of examine my behavior. And I was like kind of, you know, kind of trying to clean my act up a little bit. I had felt like maybe this is getting a little bit out of hand. I need to smoke a little less and like pay attention, go to class more, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. Cause, cause my girlfriend and my family, people were saying stuff to me like, Hey, you're, you're slipping. Like, you know, your apartment's a wreck. You're not going to class. What's your problem? I was starting to take notice, you know, a little bit. And uh, so it was doubly a shock because they were like, we're indicting you. You're going to jail, blah, blah, blah. So, um, well, long story short, the crime that I committed by selling, um, even just to sell one sheet of acid at the time was classified as um, the crime of a kingpin. Literally, you know, is a kingpin classification. The way that they figured uh, sentencing guidelines was that there was like four classifications. There was, um, I think, under bulk, which would be like, you know, maybe one to 10 hits of acid is just less than bulk. 10 hits of acid is bulk. 30 hits of acid is three times bulk. And 100 hits of acid was 10 times bulk. If you had 10 times bulk and you sold that, that was considered the highest classification of a felony for trafficking drugs. And you were considered a drug kingpin. It's called super bulk. And you automatically face 15 to life with a mandatory minimum sentence of 15 years actual incarceration. Which, which is a mouthful. It's a lot of legal jargon if you don't understand it. But what it basically means is I was looking at, at a minimum, I would have to be in prison for 10 and a half years day for day until I would see the parole board and you have a chance for release. I would be serving a 15 to life sentence. So uh, what I had to do was I had to plead guilty in exchange for a lesser, lighter sentence. And that lesser, lighter sentence which was whatever the mercy of the cops and the and the prosecutors would give me, that was a six to twenty five year sentence, and that was the that's what I was sentenced to when I went to prison was six to twenty five years, which is an indeterminate prison sentence, of which anyone in Ohio would be required to serve a minimum of four actual years day for day, and that's what I served was four actual years day for day. 
Yeah, so it was like a neutron bomb went off in your life for everyone who knew you, loved you, who knew your music, and, and you. You're this 18, 19-year-old, right? This is all happening. You were, what, about 20 when this happened? Yeah, so, well, I, I went to jail when I was 20, but I was waiting for sentencing when I was 19, and I committed the crime when I was 18. So. Yeah, it was. It was a shock. At first, it was kind of like, oh, this couldn't really happen to me. I mean, I'm on a full scholarship. I'm a you know violin prodigy. You know, I was, I was two merit badges short of a life or Eagle Scout and, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, in the youth group, you know, straight A's, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, of course, there had always there had been this part of my life where I'd been a troublemaker, too. Right. And it pushed the boundaries and it acted out. But I thought, you know, oh, come on. But I, I soon realized that there was no flexibility in the law. That's the whole thing about uh, mandatory minimums, which has become a, a hot topic, you know, for the last 20 years <laughs> since I was incarcerated, um, or even before that. Um, it's part of this whole pendulum in politics between rehabilitation and um, correction or punishment, the, the Department of Rehabilitations and Corrections. And the pendulum swings back and forth between this mindset of we want to rehabilitate people or we want to punish people. And it's trying to find that balance. So so we had talked about this uh, when, you know, I thought about getting in touch with you. And uh, you, you, you were telling me once you realized how serious this was and there was no way out of it, then these experiences you began to have in that situation where you really fundamental things started happening in terms of how you understood life itself and justice and fairness, but also art and music. So just tell me a couple incidences where you saw things and you'd look at somebody and suddenly you'd just see it differently. Yeah, so prison was a chance for me to reflect on my identity, my purpose, and my education. And it gave me a chance to think about, you know, manhood because I was coming from a kid's world, you know, university, and I was in a world purportedly of men. And so I was thinking, what is it, what is it going to look like for me to become a man? And what kind of man am I going to be? I hadn't really been given a lot of thought while I was smoking weed for a couple of years. I was just messing around, you know, but I started to think about what do I want my future to be and what do I want to stand for and what do I believe? Because every day you're confronted and you you have to make a choice and you have to stand for something. You don't have a choice to be passive in that decision. If somebody violates your space, you have to decide whether you're going to be passive or you're going to be aggressive or you know how you're going to maneuver out of that situation. If the Aryan brothers come up and invite you to join their group, you have to say yes or no. <laughs> You know, I mean, you know, I mean, if somebody tries to rape you or, you know, tries to play you in one of 30 different ways, you have to figure out how you're going to respond. So in prison, you don't have an option to just, you know, not make a decision. You've got to make a decision. What do I stand for? What's my code? You know, and you're confronted with these very, um, um, very strong um um, examples of different codes, you know, and people talk about the code of the convict. And I think it's a very interesting question to wrestle with. What is the code of a convict? 
you know, because it's not a clear black and white thing. It's, it's riddled with paradoxes and bullshit and, you know, and it's like an exceptions to the rule. And maybe there's two sides to the coin, right? I don't know. You know, that's like, you know, is the, the, the convict never snitches or the convict always stands up or, you know, that, you know, I mean, none of the, none of that's really true, but people talk a lot about it, the code of the convict, but it made me think about what's, what is the code of manhood? What is that? Well, I found a lot of times in there that I saw that there was a certain code in which people ultimately led to their own self-destruction. And one of the things that was prevalent is this idea of getting your propers. Getting your propers means you don't let anybody um, invade your space or disrespect you in any way. If someone disrespects you, you have to you have to confront that very strongly, very aggressively. And violently, and you have to be willing to take it to its logical extreme. The, I mean, and so what I'm saying is in the joint, that doesn't mean because you're the strongest guy. You can be a really small guy, <laughs> but if you're willing to swing a knife, that's all it takes. It doesn't matter how small you are. I met some really small guys who were willing to cut somebody. But when you think about it, when I, when I think about that, it's really a dilemma. This is really a serious dilemma that I faced every day for four years. Because if somebody disrespects you and you accept it, if you allow them to come sit on your bed uninvited in your space, in what you call your house, which is three feet in a warehouse with a bed and three feet to the next bed, that's the only space you have. They come and they stand in your space. That's, that's a clear you know, um, infringement on your territory. It's, it's, you know, if you let them sit down, then that invites them to cross the next boundary. And they say, hey, why don't you give me a cigarette? And then if you say, okay, okay, I'll give you a cigarette. And then they say, uh, hey, can I borrow some uh, some coffee? You know, until next week, I'll get it to you next week. And you're like, uh, okay. You know, well, pretty soon you're doing, you know, you're their sex slave. And that's literally how it happens. Because it's just little violations that build up. It's not like somebody hits you over the head with a broomstick and they rape you violently in the shower. You know, it's just these little threats that just that, um, graduate. So, so that's what happens if you submit, right? That's clear. <laughs> but, and so you don't want to do that, right? Well, it seems really obvious. Well, so what's the other option? So someone comes and sits on your bed, the code of this code of the convict or this code of the streets would have you say, Motherfucker, get the fuck off my bed, bitch, before I split your ass. That's exactly, you know, something like that. Or I just fucking hit the motherfucker. <laughs> you know, the problem with that is that just leads to my own self-destruction as well. Because as soon as I hit the person, I'm going to get sent to solitary confinement. It's going to ruin my month. It's going to take away privileges. My family's not going to be able to visit me. I'm going to be limited on the commissary. I might be pulled out of college. Um... And when I see the parole board serving a six to 25 year indeterminate sentence, the parole board is going to say, hmm, I see you got in a fight. They don't care who hit who. It's a kangaroo court. You don't have due process in prison. So you get in a fight. It doesn't matter who threw the first punch. You're going to be punished for it, which means you're going to do more time. The logical conclusion of that is your own self-destruction. And that's the problem. But that's the thing that so many men are caught up into this code of getting your propers and stuff. There is no clear way to deal with that problem. There just isn't. 
it's a dilemma that I wrestled with for four years in prison. And there were times when I um, walked away from confrontations and there were times that I um, stood up to confrontations. But that's just one of many struggles that I dealt with on a, on a daily level in terms of trying to wrestle with what do I stand for? <laughs> Where do I fall on this issue? And what kind of man am I? And how do I, how do I resolve this dilemma? Am I, am I a peaceful person? Am I a violent person? Am I, you know? Um, so sorry, I got kind of sucked into that. A friend of mine one time said, if you only have two choices, which is kind of what you're putting forward, right? He said, it is a dilemma and you don't want dilemmas. That's what you never want. You want to have at least three or four choices. Two choices is a dilemma. Mm, interesting. So um, some of the guys you saw there, you, you, you mentioned to me, or, or what did you see their situation? Because they, they didn't have anything to fall back on, like music. Uh, I mean, also I'm curious, you know, having as a cellmate your violin, I think that's... <laughs> I mean, it's like a friend. You know? Well, I had a cellmate. I had, I, you know, the first two years I, at um, Ross, I was in, that's called, it was referred to as a cell joint. So I was in, I was in a cell, but I always had a cellmate. But the last two years of the four years I was incarcerated, I was in uh, dormitories, warehouse style dormitories with 250 men in a room and three feet between the beds. Um, there are very different experiences in the two, in the two prisons. Why'd they switch you? It's it's kind of a long story, I hate to say, but um, the Warden's Band in the first prison I was in at Ross was a love project or a heart project of the warden, Ron Edwards, who happened to be a young African-American warden, uh, well-educated and on his rise to through the political ranks of the, um, of the state of Ohio. And... Uh, this was uh, a warden who was sympathetic to enough um, on the rehabilitation side of the pendulum that he wanted to create this vocational music program. And there's a lot of guards that worked for the warden in this very white rural area that resented this, you know, in many, many different ways. I mean, first of all, why are we giving inmates instruments? you know, let alone TVs and weights and whatever else, right? You know, a lot of people think like, take away the TVs, take away the weights, take away the musical instruments, you know, just punish them, you know? And and Ron was very visionary in terms of like, you know, he he wanted to have this musical, okay, he had a vision, you know, he wanted to, to help guys by giving them a, the opportunity to work on music. And uh, thank, thank goodness he did. So, um, but also... He was a black warden, you know, with a bunch of white guards working underneath him. I think there was a lot of racial tension. Also, the warden's band was predominantly African-American playing African-American music, which a lot of those white unionized guards, you know, that a lot of whom had cousins and brothers and sisters, you know, who had a, you know, quote unquote, sweet state job, you know, working at that penitentiary. Um, I mean, all these things rub these people the wrong way. So I was a pawn. I was the white, if you want to say I was the white boy in the warden's band. I was the token white boy in the warden's band. And so by um, by shipping me out of the prison, some of the guards were able to deal a blow to the warden and his, his, 
his heart project. It's kind of a long story how they did that, but that's basically what happened. So they managed to do it one way or another. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I can tell you exactly what happened. We were out playing at a park in the community. My mom and my family came, and because that was one of the perks that we were allowed, is our families could come and watch us perform at this park, and we could sit and have a little picnic. And this was a really very, very special privilege, as you might imagine. And the warden gave us all this trust and let us, you know, do this. Um, and uh, so my mom later on sent me photos from the picnic. And the warden and his family, the warden's family had come to the picnic and she sent me a note and she said, Chris, could you please give these photos to Ron? Just like anybody's mom would say, hey, I took some photos of your, your friend's family. Would you give it to them? Because he might like to have these photos. You know, it was a gesture on my mom's part just to be to thank the warden. And because you know, my parents were always trying to stay in touch uh, with the warden to make sure that their son was OK. They, were, I mean, they couldn't do much, but they were trying to do whatever they could. And uh, so what happened was the guards came and shook down all my stuff. And they found those photos and they used those photos as evidence of what they called a threat to the security of the institution and a threat to the security of the warden. So basically they were saying, like, you're going to you're going to extort the warden. You have pictures of his family, which couldn't have been farther from the truth. But but obviously it's it's such a convenient lie that there's nothing the warden could do about it either because it's, you know, didn't matter what the intention behind it was. It looked like I was literally trying to blackmail the warden or like, you know, plot like to, you know, hurt his family, which, you know. And so they threw me in solitary and then they rode me out, rode me out to another institution. And that, you know, was a blow to the warden ultimately and the program. So, of course, the question I'm thinking about is you go through this experience and what happens to the classical music? Right. Well, it's funny because sometimes in prison I would go outside and I was continuing to work on my classical violin playing. And uh, so I would go out in the yard and practice. Uh, I mean, while I was at Ross um, and I was in the warden's band, I could practice sometimes on my electric violin, which was very quiet uh, in my cell sometimes. Or I could go into the band room and I could practice there. But once I got to London, Ohio Correctional uh, Institution, um, I would the only place I could play was outside. So when the weather permitted, I would literally go into the prison yard with my violin and I'd find a space out in left field of the baseball diamond or whatever, you know, and uh, work on my classical violin. I mean, it was really important to me to keep that going. And um, did you have the repertoire, some of it already memorized? Well, I mean, I played classical violin since I was five years old. So of course I had books upon books of music memorized and, and, uh, you know, and I had sheet music that I could work on new music. I could bring up old music, work on exercises that are just eternal exercises, you know, repertoire that you practice forever. Bach, you know, unaccompanied violin pieces, you know. Um, I had plenty of repertoire that I could work on. And was that process of just doing those repetitions and doing those pieces, was it really helpful? Yeah, it was. I mean, there's two things I'll say about I think two two things that come to mind. One is that people always say, "Oh, you're in prison. That must be why you're so good because you had all that time on your hands. So you must have practiced all the time." So what I love to say about that, because <laughs> that really reveals this assumption that people make about human nature, which I believe is really untrue. People just tend to assume that you know, if I had time on my hands, 
I get all this stuff done that I've been putting off. It's not really how human nature works, though. See, see, like we we um, find all kind of ways to distract ourselves from doing the things that are hard for us to do. They're not hard to do because we don't have time to do them. They're hard to do because they're hard to do because we're afraid to follow through on them. Who knows what? You know, that novel you've always wanted to write, but you never wrote. It wasn't because you didn't have time. It's because, you you know, maybe there was some fear. It's, it's about discipline. It's the enigmatic nature of what makes us motivated to actually work hard on the things that we say that we want to get better at, right? So a great example of that is prison. <laughs> prison is a microcosm that really brings a lot of these lessons to the core because, uh, to the fore rather, because um, I don't know, there's something about it that just makes you see them in this different context with through this super laser lens. And this is an example. So like, if you've ever been in solitary confinement, that's a really great way to, 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 to see this problem. Because <laughs> solitary confinement is like the epitome of I've got time on my hands. Now, there were four different occasions in which I was in solitary confinement for two weeks. And so I can speak on this subject. <laughs> you know, I'm, that's plenty well enough acquainted with solitary confinement. And so when you're in solitary confinement, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, I'll do a lot of push-ups every day. You know, you, you got all this time in your hand, like, I'm going to do push-ups, I'm going to write letters, I'm going to read books, you know, if they let you have books, if they let you write letters, you know. And um, the thing is, you can lay in solitary confinement all day and not do a nair push-up because you're just depressed and you're just not motivated. You're just laying there and you're just feeling like crap and that's just, you know, that's it's easier. It's harder to, sit, to do push-ups even when you got all that time on your hands. It's the same thing with practicing, you know, the violin or practicing any discipline. It takes, every day you get up, there's a fight, you know, and you have to fight it to say, like, I'm going to make myself do this stuff. That was one of the central struggles of prison for me, was every day getting up and saying, am I going to use this day? Am I going to fight through the desire to be depressed or the desire to tune out or to cop out or act out? And am I going to actually make the choice to engage in these self-productive, self-developing you know, developing behaviors, practicing my violin, going to the gym, working out, um, writing that letter, you know, reading that textbook. It takes a lot of work to do that no matter where you are. So that's, that's one of the first things I'll say about playing, you know, practicing classical violin in prison. Um, the other thing I'll say about it is that when I was standing out there in left field, of the baseball diamond in the, in the prison yard and all the convicts are walking around the yard and doing whatever they're doing. Something really powerful struck me that stuck with me ever since then. And it struck me that this is, first of all, it struck me, this is a really odd place for me to be playing classical music right now. I'm in the middle of this prison yard. I'm playing Mendelssohn. But the other thing that struck me is I think people like this. <laughs> you know, they're, they're not, you know, People could be heckling me or, you know, making fun of me right now or telling me to shut the fuck up. But I think actually people appreciate the fact that I'm playing Mendelssohn in the middle of this baseball field right now. I think they really appreciate it. And it, it was a revelation to me because I realized, and there are other things that support this as well about music in prison. But I realized that music is a human organic thing. You know, in our culture, in our society, we, we have all these assumptions, especially from the elite classical world. You think, well, there's no way you can perform music unless you have a concert hall. 
The concert hall must have air conditioning. There must be a music librarian to prepare the sheet music. There should be a conductor. There should be an ushers. There should be a playbill. There should be a marquee. There should be a publicity campaign. And there should definitely be a program. <laughs> there should be straight back chairs with music stands. I mean, I could go on and on, like all the accoutrements that we think are somehow necessary for us to like actually make music. And this is, again, speaking to the culture of education or the culture of music education in this classical academy, which is different than the participatory culture and is different than many other cultures in the black church, in the carnival of Brazil, in the folk filling traditions where you see how music is just, it's just on the back porch. It's just happening. You know, nobody says it's going to happen at seven o'clock, you know, but in prison, like it wasn't just me playing Mendelssohn, but I made a point. I made it. I made a promise to myself. He said, "I'm going to remember this, and I'm going to play music wherever I want to play music, anywhere for the rest of my life." And it's not about that it's good or that it's perfect or that it has to be in a concert hall. Music is something that needs to be shared. It needs to be something that can be expressed anywhere. And it was a profound, liberating experience for me. But there's other ways that I saw this really important. Um, revelation in prison because you walk around the prison yard and you see music happening in various places in various different ways like you might have like some young guys beating out beats literally beating out beats on a picnic table on their bodies with their hands you know whatever beatboxing and and rapping you know rhyming it's again very organic the people that walk by some some people might you know, some of the Aryans might be complaining about it, but you know, but more or less people appreciate it. Like that's you know that's happening. Like that's art, and they're feeling it because what you feel in prison is violence, which is the void of humanity. Violence, not somebody slapping you across the face. Violence, the void, the absence of freedom, the absence of trust, the absence of intimacy. And when you experience music on the prison yard, it fills that void with humanity. So this sense of being dehumanized, this sense of being alienated, is literally you can feel it palpably going away. You can literally feel humanity, like just on that prison yard through this music. You feel it. Um, and you walk down 30 more yards, and there's some guys that are singing a cappella some gospel Christian song together and you go another 50 yards around the yard and some guy's beating a guitar and singing a country song and there's a harmonica player playing along with him and it's fucking beautiful it's fucking beautiful like you know when I'm hearing this I'm experiencing it I'm thinking this is such a relief this is such a lift for me like I just feel this release and I feel this sense of I'm not in prison. I'm in this place with human beings and these are all people and we're connected and we feel the spirit of this music. And that's what made me realize that all this other stuff is fucking bullshit. <laughs> you know, it's just, I mean, you know, this this pretense of the classical world and this this idea that it needs to be perfect. But it was other experiences in prison also, like sitting in one of the first times after I got out of the county jail for two weeks, I went to the reception center. And actually that was the fifth time I was in no, I guess the fourth time. It's in solitary. You first you you go to the county jail, then you go to solitary in the reception center. And I heard this voice in the cell next to me, and he's singing. And I was just like, holy shit. Like I was so moved by this this 
whoever this person was in the cell next to mine singing. So moved by it. I, I, was, I found myself laying in my bed crying. And this is as you're starting into your four years. Yeah, this is as I'm starting. This is. A, you have no idea what this is, but you know it's, it seems forever. Yeah, exactly. I didn't even. I this is me starting onto a six to twenty-five year sentence, right? <laughs> Knowing that I most likely will be there a minimum of four years, unless some miracle of like a commutation or a pardon happens, which I'm not counting on. Um, and uh, and this is after you know two weeks in the county, and then you go to the reception center, which is where they basically haze you. It's like boot camp. It's like you're a number. Give us all your shit, you know, shaving your head, bend over. We're going to stick our fingers in your ass. You know, all this, you know, this kind of like talk to you like you're dirt, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then just set you into solitary, you know, every day or whatever for a long time. It's like very traumatic. And uh, and some of these people, a lot of the people there had been through it before. So they were just, it was just, you know, another day. But for me, obviously, 20 years old, I mean, yeah, I was in complete shock and really traumatized by it. So. I heard this voice next in the cell next to me and I just started crying and I was just, you know, cause it was just, it really moved me. And that wasn't always how, you know, music didn't always strike me as being that powerful as it did once I was in prison. You know, I realized how powerful it was and that it was this organic human thing. Who was the guy? Well, the guy next to me, I don't even remember who that guy was. You never not got to know him or anything. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I remember though that he was African-American. And I remember, you know, and this is, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of kinds of music that you hear on tapes and on records, but until you hear them live, up close and personal, sometimes you don't fall in love with that music or you don't really, there's something that's invisible that you miss. And so going to prison was where I heard African-American music up close and personal. And it's where I fell in love with the music because the things that had been invisible to me were becoming more visible to me than they had been blues, soul, swing, these quintessentially African-American cultural or musical phenomena. I was, I was seeing them up close and personal, which as a middle-class white kid, I never really had before. And uh, so that's, that's a huge theme of my development as a musician because of the prison experience, because I would play in the church services on Sundays or you know, and then there were a lot of African-Americans that I would play music with, like in the Warden's Band and later on at London with other musicians that just befriended me and we would just play music in the yard, some of whom asked me to teach them things because they perceived me as the schooled white boy, you know, who could who could pass on game, you know, who could pass on the book smart aspect of music to them. And so I was sought I was sought after as a valuable asset to some of um, these self-taught musicians or street-taught musicians who said, you know, I need to talk to that white boy because he's going to tell me about the book smart side, you know, because I want to up my game in the music, you know. And, and so And that would translate into some level of protection too, wouldn't it? I mean. Well, exactly, it translated into my survival. Because these people were, you know, they were um, veterans of the system. They had, you know, they knew the game. They um, had power in that social system. And uh, so, you know, they would come to me and say, hey, man, will you tell me about these scales and tell me about chords and tell me about, you know, what? Peggios. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah, exactly. And so I'd be like, sure, you know, let's hang out. Let's talk and walk around. The, you know, so we, we might have our instruments and we might play or um, 
or we might walk around and talk about it, or I might sit down with a pencil and paper and show some things that I knew, just whatever, music theory stuff. But I was also very eager, and I realized quickly that I was learning as much from them, if not more. And that's where this deeper question also of another huge theme for me, this question of what is knowledge and ways of knowing. And as it pertains to the culture of music education, again, I say, you know, the classical academy has so much pretense because they think that they've got this super insight into how to learn music and what is good music. And they're so ignorant. They're just missing so much. And so that theme is a really deep theme for me because it's not just about me and sitting with an African-American musician and hearing the way they sing and realizing how deep and heavy (laughs) what they're doing musically is and that I could spend the rest of my life trying to be that heavy with music and that that is a a really important and, and beautiful thing that should be celebrated and taught in music. But it's also beyond just music. It's about life. It's about what is wisdom, what is no, you know, what is knowledge, what is manhood and and who can define it in what language, you know? So, you know, walking around with these men, you know, pimps, murderers, rapists, drug dealers, whatever they are, you know, they're espousing wisdom to me in a language that was completely different and from a life that I could not even begin to imagine, but it was real wisdom. And the things that I was learning them from them were really deep, just as deep as the thing I was, things that I was learning from philosophy texts. Let's listen to Chris perform the Joni Mitchell song, Both Sides Now, from his music CD, American Spirit. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. To learn more about the Rosin the Bow project, and for links to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. 
And let me leave you now with a simple Hindu proverb. He who has come through the fire will not fade in the sun. Thank you.